Thank you, Stephen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to um, the Jacobson family. I had um, every intention of spreading all kinds of fake news about how they were hanging out on the beach in Ormond-by-the-Sea drinking mimosas while we were in worship this morning, but I was foiled by God's sovereign hand. So anyway, welcome back. Nice to have you. First uh, Samuel 18, verses 1 through 9. I've titled this sermon, The Idol of Reputation, and I promise you that I did not conspire with Mike ahead of time, but I think God did. I'll be reading from the New International Version. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. And they danced, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Let's pray. Lord, may your spirit be here through your word, not simply to inform us, but to transform us. And may our words and our meditations be holy and be delightful and be desiring in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Wow, you have really done well for yourself. You look fantastic. Have you lost weight? What a ride. I wish I could afford something like that. You have such well-behaved children. How do you you pull that off? Dude, you are totally shredded. So how did you pull off retiring so early? You have more academic degrees than I have fingers and toes. Man, you really upgraded. I wish I could find someone that hot. My, you have such beautiful grandchildren. You know so much theology, uh, you should teach at a seminary. You're so funny, you're so outgoing, you're just a party waiting to happen. I wish I would die to own a place like this. I wish I could play half as well as you do. Great presentation, you really knocked it out of the park again. Well, we know anything that you cook is going to win first prize. Emails at 2 a.m., I doubt anyone works as hard as you do. How does it feel to always be the smartest person in the room? You're the best lover I've ever had. Is there anything you don't do well? You are the total 
package. What do you want to be known for? What do you really want to be known for? What is it that you want people to say about you, to you, but particularly about you when you are not around? If you're like me, and you claim to follow Christ, you probably sincerely want to be known as a genuine disciple, right? Someone who seeks to make Christ known, who seeks to further his kingdom. You probably want to be known as a person of integrity, a loyal spouse, a good father or mother, a good steward of the time and the talent and the treasures that God has entrusted to you. But life is full of mixed motivations full of mixed motivations. And if you're like me, you probably also resonate very strongly with one or two or five of the compliments that I just read a moment ago. You want to be admired, and deep down inside, you really want to be admired in some of those ways. Right? Well, our story in 1 Samuel is a story about a king who really wanted to be admired in some of those ways too. If we parachute into the history of the nation of Israel around 1000 BC, we're reminded that after the Exodus and after the period of the judges, the final judge, Samuel the prophet, arrives on the scene. And despite Samuel's faithful leadership of the people, the Israelites announced that they want to be like the other nations. They want a human king. And despite Samuel's warnings about all the unintended consequences that that would would befall Israel, the people ultimately reject God's kingship in exchange for a human king. And as God tells uh, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. Well, the first one of the human kings, of course, is Saul the Benjamite. And by reasonable accounts, he begins his reign satisfactorily. In 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, he's identified as a man who's a head taller than the rest, who's chosen and anointed as Israel's first king. However, despite these appearances, he initially assumes the role with some humility, some modesty, if not insecurity. He experiences a visible outward transformation when he's anointed by God's spirit. In chapter 11, he rescues Jabesh from the Ammonites, and as documented in 1 Samuel 14, 47, he subsequently leads campaigns against Moab, against Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Jobah, and against the Philistines. However, things t- excuse me, soon turn south for Saul. I'll leave it to your own study, but in 1 Samuel 13, 8 and 9, and 1 Samuel 15, 7 through 9, Saul commits two critical acts of disobedience against God's priesthood and against God himself. And an analysis of both situations informs us that in both instances, Saul falls because he is intent on pleasing his people. On pleasing his people. And as the story further unfolds, we find that Saul remains intent on finding a way to hold on to the kingdom and hold on to his status even though Samuel tells him it has been torn away. Now at this point, we're introduced to David, the newly anointed. And although Saul's initial exchanges with David are pleasant enough during the battle with Goliath, it doesn't take Saul very long to see that God's hand of favor is upon David and that David is a real threat. 
David is successful in all his campaigns. The people love David. Saul's son, Jonathan, loves David. Saul's daughter, Michal, loves David. Everybody loves David. So Saul does what we are all told to do. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And that takes us to the refrain from our passage being sung in the streets. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul's position, his status, his reputation before the people was under full-fledged assault. And Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. About eight years ago, the university for whom I'm currently employed began a formal initiative to pursue the highest level accreditation for its business school. This was no small endeavor because this accreditation agency is well known for only accrediting some 6%, 6% of business schools worldwide. And while such an accreditation is expected for a large public institution, a small Christian liberal arts school is entirely a different matter. Nonetheless, after three years of hiring new faculty members and getting prepared, new faculty members including myself and getting prepared, the university sent in its application and it was accepted for a process that takes at a minimum five years to accomplish. The year was 2018 and the clock was now ticking. About half a year later, the dean of the business school approached me and he asked if I would take on leadership of the project. The former project leader was no longer able to continue and there was no one else who was available to jump in. I knew it would be a ton of work. I knew it was a far cry from the reasons why I had left a well-paying job in industry to come to the academy, but I also knew it would be an opportunity to prove myself. You see, even though I'd had a respectable 30-year career in the defense industry, I was new to academia. And with no disrespect, academia can kind of live in its own little bubble that doesn't often know very much about what other professions really do. So I decided I would show them. It wasn't my baby. It wasn't my idea. I honestly really didn't care very much about the actual accreditation itself, at least not at the beginning. But once I signed my name on that line, I was going to get it done. Because if you know anything about me, I get things done. Four years later, May of this year to be exact, I got it done. After thousands of years, or excuse me, hours, seemed like years, <laughs> of project managing, report writing, training of faculty and administration, organizing, planning, detailing, and hosting meeting events, it got done. The proverbial champagne corks were popped, the administrators were high-fiving and slapping each other on the back. And at that moment, at that moment, despite some nice words and some verbal recognition and some accolades, I decided I was not appreciated enough. The substance of my contributions, I felt, were overlooked. People were already on to, what have you done for me lately? So I got angry, I got bitter, I got resentful, and I got nasty. Now, please hear me. In my near 40-year career, I have worked for the government, for large and small corporations, and now for the academy. I've worked in the public sector and the private sector for profits and nonprofits, and I've learned in most any organization there will always be leaders who, knowingly or unknowingly, wittingly or unwittingly, 
intentionally or unintentionally, take advantage of top performers and ride that horse until it dies. So be very aware of this. Christian employees are not called to be lemmings who set no boundaries, answer emails at 2 a.m., and feel guilty when the boss calls them on the weekend and they're not available to immediately respond. But in the world of work, that is exactly what we are going to be if we kneel to the, to the idol of reputation. If our work, in this case, is ultimately about proving ourselves and pleasing other people, that's what's going to happen. That, that's exactly what happened to me. And I knew better. I had no one to blame but myself. Now that's just work. And for some of us, work is a big one, right? But it's just one thing. The same idolatry is at work in any area, any area where we decide we're going to please people, play to the crowd, perform for attention, and prove ourselves worthy. Our wealth, our toys, our physical attractiveness, our trophy spouses, our kids, our humor, our winsomeness, our athletics, our intellect, our degrees, yes, even our theology and our sermon delivery. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, yeah, I can see how that might apply to me a little bit, but it seems a little over the top. Well, I hope you're right. I hope I'm the only one in the room who has this magnitude of a problem. But if you really want to test it, if you really want to test your idol of reputation, See what happens when the idol doesn't get fed, or it doesn't get fed enough. When the compliments don't come, or enough of them don't come. When you lay it all out there and you don't get enough of the glory, right? When, God forbid, someone else gets more glory in that area than you do. As my wife Cheryl rightly pointed out, we really won't know how much our idol of reputation is really present until it doesn't get what it wants. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and Saul was very angry. Well, even if we rightly identified this idol of reputation, where do we go from here? How can we get to the root of the issue, let alone really begin to overcome it? It's a good question. But I suggest that if we're really dialed into Saul's struggle, we're going to find out that his idol of reputation and ours is ultimately an issue of misplaced identity. Misplaced identity. What do I mean by this? Let's consider for a moment what it's like when people come out of the womb, out of the box, as it were. As soon as we're able to express ourselves, I believe we will start communicating deeply felt needs, what I'll call identity needs. Needs like, we need to feel meaningful. We need to feel worthwhile. We need to feel safe. We need to feel powerful. We need to feel valued. We need to feel esteemed. We need to feel loved, right? Now, if I had time, I think I could show you that every one of these identity needs that I just spoke about existed within humankind before the fall. Before the fall. In other words, they are God-created needs, but they were needs that were, excuse me, originally designed to be met in the garden. This is very important because we know what happens next. When humankind falls, when it fell and we were invaded by sin, we left the garden. 
Our relationship with our creator was corrupted, but our identity needs did not go away. Think about your children or your grandchildren or any toddler that you can remember. As soon as they're able, think about how many times they want to show you their toy or show you their picture or show you the hole that they dug in the beach or whatever, right? What are they really saying? What are they really asking? Something like, look at me. Show me that you value me. Show me that you love me. Show me that you approve of me. Show me that you esteem me. Show me that you think I'm meaningful. Show me that you think I'm worthy. And of course, being well-trained parents and grandparents that we are, we say things like, wow, Johnny, that's awesome. What a big boy you are. Did you really do that all by yourself? And Johnny quickly learns, as does Janie, that we naturally receive our validation and our approval and our worthiness from what other people think of us. What other people think of us. And by the time we get to be King Saul's age, we're asking the same questions, but just in different ways. Do you honor me? Do you esteem me? Do you approve of me? Do you value my reputation based on how valiant a warrior I am? Right? Now, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture that says don't pay attention to what anybody else thinks of you. You be you. Be true to yourself. No one else. But deep down inside, I don't think very many people, if anyone, really lives like that. We may say it, but I think we rarely follow it. And even if we do, in some ways, that actually makes it worse. Because our inner voice, the voice in our head, that voice that's constantly whispering to us, you know that one, that voice? It has a very nasty way of spewing condemnation after condemnation after condemnation at itself. So where does it leave us? Well, we learn to play the reputation game. We get a little of this, get a little of that. We fall in and out of love. We welcome a new job until it gets old. We get recognized for achievement and then it gets forgotten. We make some money and then we need some more and on and on and on the merry-go-round goes. Unless. Unless we truly encounter the gospel in a deep and a transformative way, a transformational way. There is an ultimate identity statement for any person who has repented and believed the message of Christ. It is not Christian, though that's not wrong. It's not Christ follower, though that's not wrong either. It's not even disciple, as biblical as that is. It is the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is the basis of what teachers call our union with Christ. As John Stott stated, the commonest description in the scriptures of a follower of Jesus is that he or she is a person in Christ. The expressions in Christ, in the Lord, and in him, excuse me, occur 164 times in the letters of Paul alone and are indispensable to an understanding of the New Testament. To be in Christ, Stott says, does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a toolbox or as clothes are in a closet, but to be, hear me, organically united 
to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. As a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is a distinctive mark of his authentic followers. In other words, I am the vine, you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, why does this matter? It matters because if you are in Christ, the scripture says that you are a new creation and you have been given a new identity, a new identity. You have been given, in the words of Tim Keller, an identity that is received, not an identity that is achieved. You see, every other means of meeting our identity needs that I talked about earlier involves performance, right? Doing. It involves, as I said before, people pleasing, playing to the crowd, performing for attention, and proving ourselves worthy. But in Christ, meeting our identity needs involves simply listening to the right voice. It involves changing the voice that we hear. It involves changing the radio station from the crowd and from ourselves to the voice of God. Now, how does this work? Does this even happen? Well, long after the the days of King Saul, another Saul came along, who, of course, was later named Paul the Apostle, a persecutor of Christ turned apostle of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 4, he gives us an interesting demonstration of his identity in Christ because his status as an apostle is being unfairly attacked, ruthlessly attacked by the congregation within Corinth. And he responds in this way, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, at face value, this might just sound like the modern, don't pay attention to what other people think about you gig. But it's deeper than that. Paul is saying, your opinion, Corinthians, does not judge or define me. Even my opinion, Paul's, does not judge or define me. The only opinion that truly judges and defines me is God's. Now, if we really believe this, if we really believe this, if we were really able to grasp and live by this truth, I suggest it would be truly transformational. Why? Because if we were listening to God's voice, this, through his word and through his spirit, these are the kinds of things that we would be hearing him tell us. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the king of the universe. The alpha and the omega, the eternal I am. And I created you as one of a kind. Since the beginning of time, there has never been another person like you. You needn't compare yourself to anyone else. I know you to the core of your being, your strengths, your weaknesses. You are and always will be of inestimable value to me. You don't need to congratulate yourself or honor yourself or look for the world's honor anymore. In a world of eight billion people, I know you by name. I honor you. You matter. And you matter to me. Moreover, through his word, and if I had time, I'd give you the scripture references, but you have to take my word for it, that these are just paraphrased versions of scripture. He would tell us that in Christ, you have meaning because I made you a new creation. You have worth because I paid everything to redeem you. You are safe 
because I am your strong tower. You are powerful because I am the strength of your heart. You are valued because I delight and rejoice over you. You are highly esteemed because I created you for a unique purpose. You are loved because I find you altogether beautiful. We would hear him say, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. I know them. And they follow me. John 10, 27. And he would tell us, listen to my voice. Listen to my voice. Now at this point, you might be thinking, yeah, right. If it were that easy, everybody would do it, right? Just listen to God's voice. Well, I'm here to tell you that from personal experience, developing the practice of truly listening to God's voice is not easy fare. It involves immersing ourselves in the word, immersing ourselves in prayer, meditating on the word and the spirit, and as some say, preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. This is the gospel that reminds us that we have been bought back and delivered from our captivity to sin, that we've been declared righteous, having all our sins forgiven through the atonement of Jesus Christ, that we've been adopted into the family of God with God as our new father and Christ as our elder brother. That we've, been, that we've received new life through the power of Christ's resurrection, that we have this new identity in Christ because of our new place in this royal family, that we have a new name in Christ, child of the king. Now, this is not easy because we are a forgetful, distracted people, right? We are easily captivated by the world's dance. We're easily lured into... By bright shiny objects and we have a parasitic nemesis inside of us called the sin nature warring against our souls in his book the freedom of self-forgetfulness tim keller writes on that first corinthians passage that i told you about a little bit ago and in it he informs us that in chapter 4 verse 6 paul cautions those corinthian followers to avoid spiritual fusio literally being puffed up bloated and distended Because in their puffed up, bloated, and distended states, Keller tells us that our egos tend to have four very unadmirable characteristics. First, our egos are empty, prone to fill themselves up with things apart from God. Second, our egos are painful, regularly hurt about feeling snubbed or offended or ignored. Sounds familiar. Third, our egos are busy oftentimes obsessed with self-promotion and and comparison and and boasting. That is anything to draw attention to ourselves, to themselves. And finally, our egos are fragile, regularly in danger of being deflated like a balloon. Does this sound familiar? In other words, our egos are always reputation building. Now, if we whether you want to use the word ego or flesh or old self or sin nature, we have a parasite that lives within us. I call it a parasite because if we are in Christ, it is not who we are any longer, but it still invades us like a cancer. Now, I really want you to get this visual. So if you're into the old Star Trek movies with William Shatner, not Chris Pine, con, you know, those... You might remember the little parasites that Khan puts in the ears of the Federation members to get him them to do what he wants, to obey. If you're not that old, 
turn to the Spider-Man movies, you'll remember Venom invading his body's ho- his host body. Maybe you've actually been infected by a parasite. Whatever illustration works, realize that now if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, your sin nature is a parasite. It is not your identity any longer, but it is still very empty, very painful, very busy, and very fragile, and very, very active. And Paul reminds us this in Romans 7, when in his war with sin, he concludes, as it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. Now, this is not the devil made me do it theology. You've got to go back to Flip Wilson. You've got to be even older. But um, he's not saying Christians are not responsible for their sins. We certainly are. But this is Paul recognizing that he is in a battle every single day with a parasite, an enemy agent, an enemy agent who is intent on sabotaging his identity and returning him to the fields of reputation building. And I mention all of this because unless we realize this reality, we really will not take the threat seriously. We will not be on our knees daily recognizing that we have to draw upon the Spirit's power to combat it. We will not engage with spiritual radiation treatment or spiritual chemotherapy. We will treat it obliviously, and it will metastasize within us. Now, God is sovereign, and he who began a good work in you will finish it to completion. But that path of completion might prove very difficult and even very unpleasant for us and for those we love unless we pay attention. We need to actively do battle with the parasite. I close with one final reminder, and I am closing. That is a reminder to all of us that the process of living our true identity and combating the parasite of self is not accomplished alone. It requires the koinonia or fellowship of the body. Our identity in and union with Christ is not just an individual one. Mysteriously, our union with Christ is a communal one. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and and in purpose. And I'm going to get off script just for a minute because I was reading Romans 16 just this morning and I've read Romans 100 times and I've usually blown right by Romans 16. It's the names. You know, it's the Priscilla and Aquila and Phoebe and Rufus and who knew George Carlin was alive back in those days, but there was a Rufus. But then something just caught hold of my eye there, and I thought about all the stories that we don't know, all the lives that we don't have a story about, all those people who were integral to Paul's ministry. We know Paul. We knew all the letters of Paul. But who knew the human, organic storylines of those that were praying for him, those that were benefactors to him, those that were communing with him during his journey. Who knew them? So many unwritten stories. So many people that God alone knows. 
so many people whose reputations are truly God's to define. Well, we need to be honest with one another. We need to pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, be accountable to one another about the areas that we need help because the idol of reputation, that idol of reputation, that parasite, it does not go quietly. Wow, you've really done well for yourself. You look fantastic. Have you lost weight? What a ride. I wish I could afford something like this. You have such well-behaved kids. How do you pull that off? What do you want to be known for? What do you really want to be known for? Let's pray. Lord, for me, and maybe for others in this room, this is some of the hardest challenge that this world has to offer as we journey through it. So much of our lives are focused on this reputation building. We've been trained so much to live for performance. We've been trained so much for our identities to be built by things that are outside of us that are not you. We never need every ounce of your grace, your means of grace, as we were reminded earlier, to do battle with this parasite, to make progress against sin, and to live more unto you and less unto ourselves. Help us by your mercy and by your grace that you give us and bestow us each day that we would truly begin to learn what it means to be in Christ and to be in you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.